Let me ask God for help before we dive into the word. Heavenly Father, you are great and you are worthy to be praised and exalted and magnified. That's an objective fact. And yet we know that our hearts are inclined to dozens, hundreds of other things to savor and enjoy in this world, not as gifts, but as treasures. And we ask right now that you would dethrone them in our hearts. That as we look at the the glories in this book that you wrote, we would see something of you and your infinite worth and beauty and splendor. And that we would be caught up in the reality of who you are and embrace you in your fullness and in your goodness to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So John 7, 33, where we were last week, I'm gonna read through this passage here, starting with that verse. And we're gonna look at something we saw last week a little bit closer today. John 7, 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks to teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John tells us, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to, be re- were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And one of the things I said a few weeks ago as we began our study in John 7 was that it feels like in many ways, and I don't know if you've felt this way about it, I have, that it is really the, the, the terminus point of a variety of tributaries that have flown, flown or not flown, have flowed from other parts of the gospel of John to this part. And there are ideas and themes and concepts that were first, first surfaced like chapters ago in a variety of different ways, but are now being echoed within the context of John 7. And one of those we see right here during the Feast of Booths, where Jesus tells the crowd he's going back to the one who sent him. And then he cries out on the last day, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is familiar to us because it's precisely what he told the woman at the well in Samaria. In John 4, you remember, he shows up there, he's tired, he's thirsty, he comes to this well. There's a woman there with uh, the, the means to draw water and he asks her for water, despite the cultural, ethnic differences and divisions between their people, the hostility that exists there. He, he overcomes that and asks her for water and she balks at him first. 
She's like, what's going on here? And then he tells her, I don't know if you recall this, he tells her, listen, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water and I would give you living water. And then he explains to her in John 4, verses 13 through 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water in the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus using this language is not new. John 7 tells us that this water language isn't just used to to paint a pretty picture, a vivid picture. It refers to an experience, to drinking of Christ, believing in him, trusting in him. In order for Christ to give us the Holy Spirit, that has to happen. And this is actually not the first time that the Spirit or water has been encountered in the book of John. The first time we actually see that, believe it or not, was back, it was 2020, it was early in the year, before it went crazy. And uh, it was in chapter one when we were introduced to John the Baptist. If you remember this scene, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he bears witness. John 1, 32 through 34, listen to this. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, John the Baptist says, and it remained on him, on Christ. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And he says, I have seen and I have borne witness. This is the son of God, this man in front of me. So as early as John 1, we are introduced to the reality of the Holy Spirit. John says that he was told by God that the one on whom the spirit descends and remains is the son of God who will baptize not just with water, but will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so we're introduced to the spirit here in John 1. And we're also introduced to uh, its connection with the water, which is why Jesus says what he says in John 4 and John 7. This is not coming out of left field. He uses the example of the reality of living water to explain what the Holy Spirit is. And it's with this statement in John 7 that Jesus, as far as we can tell, ends his preaching during the Feast of Booths with this focus on him being the only one who can provide living water that can satisfy our thirst. And John says that in order for us to receive that spirit, he would need to be glorified. And what I wanna do today is I just want to press into that. Verse 39, like what is going on there? What does it mean to receive the spirit? What does it mean to be baptized by the spirit? because we've come to Christ and we've, we've drank from him such that when we drink from him, rivers of living water flow from our hearts out into the world. What does that look like? Now, before we look at that, it's important to make a distinction about the Holy Spirit um, because there's a difference between the work of regeneration that the spirit does to bring people to repentance and faith and this event that John is talking about here in John 7, which could only happen after Christ was glorified. For example, Jesus in John 6 says, it is the spirit who gives life. 
the flesh is no help at all. And he's talking here about the work of regeneration. He's talking about someone's eyes being opened to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. We see the same thing in John 3 when Nicodemus shows up in the middle of the night to talk to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, listen, you need to be born of the spirit. And uh, what he means here is that the spirit's work in the heart of a human being is what brings them from death to life. What brings them from darkness to light. What brings them from unbelief and rejection of God to saving faith and an embracing of God. That's what the spirit does here. That kind of activity has been happening throughout the entire course of scripture since the very first person believed. I mean, you go back even as far as Abraham, for example. Abraham believed in God. He's called the father of faith. How did he do that? From his flesh? No, that happened. It could not have happened without a work of the Holy Spirit on his heart. But what Jesus is talking about here in the Feast of Booths is different than that. It isn't merely the work of regeneration where the spirit brings us to faith. It is a baptism, an experience that could only happen after Christ had gone to the cross and been glorified, according to John here. I mean, that's what he says here, verse 39. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this specific outpouring of the spirit by Christ had not yet happened because it required that his ministry be complete and that he would be glorified. And we know from John 12, we've been resurf- resurfacing this top, this specific text repeatedly, probably every week since we began John 7, where we see that the glorification of Christ is his going to the cross. That's what Jesus says, his own words, the hours come, Father, glorify your son. So when he goes to the cross to uphold in, in his father's honor and his father's glory by dying for sinners, that's, what was, that's the point at which he was glorified. He was exalted. He was magnified. And when he did approach this cross, the night before that, he would begin to tell his disciples during their last supper in the upper room what it actually means for him to go and for the spirit to come. Why that needs to happen. That after he's glorified in what he accomplishes on that tree tomorrow, why is it critical that later he will send the Holy Spirit? And in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus labors this. It's called the farewell discourse. And this is where we're gonna be uh, the majority of our time today. So if you would turn to John 14, verse 15, I wanna look at this, not at every single verse in this passage, but I wanna look at the areas in which Jesus brings up the Holy Spirit hours before he's about to depart from the world. He presses this reality of the Spirit into his disciples repeatedly. And I wanna look at these because they help us understand what he's talking about in John 7. John 14, 15, Jesus says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. This is the the promise that Jesus is making to his disciples that the helper, the spirit would be sent by the father. He says here first, he lays some groundwork. He says, 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's important to get. Notice he doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, you love me. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The, the fountainhead of obedience to God is commandment, is, isn't commandment keeping. It is love for him. He says that. And then he says, if you do that, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper in addition to Jesus, who's with them right now. The spirit of truth who will be with them and in them forever. And Jesus says here that the world cannot receive this spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. The only people who can receive this spirit are those who love Christ. That's what he says here. And this can only happen after he goes to the father. So this is what Jesus is talking about when he refers to these rivers of living water. And the question we should ask when we get to a text like this is that's great. Jesus is, is going to send the spirit. That's awesome. What does the spirit do when he comes? Why is this important? Jesus anticipates that question from us or from the disciples 2000 years ago. And he answers it. John 14, 26. Jesus says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then again in John 15, 26, so one chapter exactly over, he says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. <clears throat> so according to Jesus, this is the focus of the spirit's work. Now I want you to notice something. He does not mention any supernatural experiences. He does not mention any spiritual gifts in this discourse. Nothing like that. Even though we know from the book of Acts, that stuff's coming. That's going to be real and it's going to happen. But Jesus, top of the mind for him when communicating the reality of the Holy Spirit, doesn't go there. He says the main focus of the Spirit's ministry in this world is to communicate, to teach, to bear witness all things related to Christ, to those he's, he's given to. What Jesus has said, what Jesus has done, who Jesus is. Jesus says here, the Spirit will bear witness about me. This is what the Spirit does. So before anything else, and really above everything else, this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit bears witness to Jesus. If we misunderstand or miss this point, we misunderstand baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is preeminent to it. The Spirit is given explicitly to bear witness to Christ. This is, this is the Spirit's work. Now think about that. <clears throat> that means that there are certain realities about Jesus that could not be communicated to the disciples or to us without this happening. Otherwise, Jesus would have just done it. There's no value in sending the spirit to bear witness of him if it's something that he's going to do directly with them. Jesus needed to go to the father in glory and send the spirit so that they could fully understand who he truly is. And this is, I mean, this is hard for us to conceive of. I mean, we're 2000 years removed from this conversation that Jesus would have to go away for them to know more about Jesus. That's hard. 
to grapple with. And we have the book of Acts. We know what happens in Pentecost. We know what's going to go down. Imagine how hard it was for these 11 men. Imagine how hard it was for them sitting across from their rabbi, their master, their savior, and him saying, I'm going away. That's all they knew. And, and I imagine there was nothing, and you can tell in what happens afterwards in this text we're about to read, there's nothing in that that seems good. There's a positive to that. You're going to leave us. So this is no doubt why Jesus continues to explain the significance of the spirit. Listen to uh, John 16, 6. This is the next time he brings it up. Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. We can see that. <clears throat> Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says it's to their advantage that he goes away. Their benefit. He says, I, I know you're sad. I can, I can see sorrow is filling your heart right now. I can tell. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come. But if I go to the Father, I will send him and he's going to bear witness about me. And it's right here during this conversation where Jesus begins to unpack the depths and the glories of what it means for the spirit to be given. But before we look at that, what I want to do is I want to skip ahead a little bit. So put your hand in John 16 and turn with me to Acts 1 verse 4. I want to peek at a scene that happens just before he ascends to his father, because this helps us understand the significance of the Holy Spirit in terms of his ministry. Acts 1-4, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. They're standing with the risen Christ. They are here in front of him. He's about to leave. And verse four says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water. That's John the Baptist. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is the baptism that we saw in John 1, the baptism of the Holy Spirit <coughs> that John foretold in chapter 1. Jesus continues here in Acts 1.8 saying, this is what's going to happen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So just consider that. This same spirit that Jesus has been laboring to engage in John 14, 15, and 16, the spirit he brought up when he talked about rivers of living water flowing from the hearts of those who would believe in him. That same spirit is a spirit that when he is given, brings with him power. Power that will enable these men to be witnesses for Jesus to the entire world. That's what the end of the earth means. Power. Luke 24, Jesus, I love the way he says it. You will be clothed with power from on high. 
That's how he describes this, this event. <clears throat> and this is interesting. This ministry of, of first Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and then the end of the world is interesting when we reflect on something that, that, was, that happened in John 7. I don't know if you re- remember this, but before Jesus talked about uh, drinking of him and the, the rivers of living water and the spirit, before he brought that up, he speaks about his departure to the father. And if you remember what he said, he said, I'm going back to the one who sent me. I'm going back to, to my father in heaven, God. And the Jewish leaders look at him and are like, where, where is this man going? Where does he think he's going? He, he says, we won't be able to find him. He says, we're, we're, is he, is he going to go out into the dispersion? Is he going to go teach the Greeks? Is that what he's going to do? And in a great twist of irony, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. That is precisely what Jesus is going to do. The entire book of Acts is Jesus doing that. When Luke begins the book of Acts, uh, he, he begins it uh, by saying, listen, in my Theophilus, in my earlier gospel, when I wrote you the gospel of Luke, <clears throat> I was just telling you all the things that Jesus began to do. Now we're going to get to the really interesting stuff, what he's going to do in the world. And that's how he introduces this book, the book of Acts. Jesus is going to be in the dispersion. He's going to be in the Greek speaking world. He's going to go to the end of the earth to teach about him through his apostles. So the Jewish leaders were right. (laughs) They were correct. Even though they didn't realize it, Jesus did intend to go in the dispersion. He was going to go all the way to the end, the end of the earth. But that only happens when he sends his spirit. And I think it's important to make another distinction here. We would be right to reflect on what happens in Acts and to say that there is a, a difference between the work of the Spirit through the apostles at the beginning of the church, at the dawn of the church, and the experience in the present age. Nevertheless, it needs to be said, and, and, and I say that because uh, the apostles, when they preached, they were preaching the words of Christ that would be canonized into Scripture. No one's adding to the New Testament anymore. Well, hopefully Nobody tries to add to it. Uh, so, so, so the experience they had with the Spirit was different. Nevertheless, it needs to be said that the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't just for these men. It wasn't just for these 11 men. It was a gift to every single believer. Remember John seven thirty nine. John tells us, now Jesus said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this isn't just about 11 men 2,000 years ago. This is about you and me right now. We're not talking about some some abstract event in history. We are talking about a reality that is right here. None of us are going to be adding anything into the scriptures. None of us are going to be doing what the apostles did at the very beginning of the church. But those who truly believe in Christ are given the same spirit Romans 8, 9 tells us that all of us who belong to Christ have the spirit of Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have his spirit. We need to just think about that for a second before we go any further. Just conceive of what this means. If you have come to drink of Christ, then God the Father has reached down from heaven, according to Romans 5, and poured out his love into your hearts through the Holy Spirit, through, to whom he's given, or to you he's given. He, he, has, he has given you his 
spirit right now, right now, no matter what you feel like, no matter what you're walking through, if you believe in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, the spirit of the living God is dwelling inside of you. Feel something of that. And Jesus tells us it's to our advantage. It is better for us that this happens. But as we've seen from the apostles in the early uh, verses of Acts, the Spirit's work doesn't just come to us and sit in us. Uh, It doesn't just terminate on our hearts. The Spirit's work flows through us out into the world. This is why they were sent immediately after Jesus told them, the Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be sent into the rest of the world. It doesn't terminate with them. And this is probably why Jesus used the, the, the imagery he used in John 7. Those who drink of him, those who believe in him, out of their hearts will flow, flow rivers of living water. This isn't standing water. This isn't a pond. These are rivers of living water that are surging out into the world from the hearts of those who have come to taste and see that the Lord really is good. That's what's going on here. If we've been baptized by the Spirit in our hearts, there are rivers of living water ready to course out into the world. We did not come to know Jesus. We did not come to know the gospel just for that knowledge to simply end with us. That's not the way it works. We came to know these things and we were given the spirit to understand these things in order for us to be witnesses. So this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus has been talking about in John 7 when he talks about rivers of living water. And it would only happen when Christ was glorified. So what does it mean, going back to John 16, so you can flip back there, what does it mean when we are faithful to do what we are called to do with the Holy Spirit in us? What does it mean for the Spirit to actually do what God has sent him to do in this world? Let's go back into the upper room. Let's eavesdrop on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Verse 7 right in the middle where he says, if I go, I will send him to you, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, Jesus tells us, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So this is what happens when the spirit bears witness to Christ in us, through us, and into the world. This is what it looks like. Jesus is describing how it shakes out. This word here, I mean, the way he does it is he says, the spirit will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Now the word convict here in the Greek is elenko, And uh, it may read something different in your translation if you're using something other than the ESV, but it it effectively means to expose or to reprove. It is to show the reality. It is to call something out. It is to, to show someone's guilt. 
to prove that they are actually guilty. And we, we tend to think of conviction, I think in Christian circles, we immediately think, oh, I was convicted by the Holy Spirit uh, about something I did or said, and I went and I repented and I asked for forgiveness. And that's, that's a true experience. That, that, that's real. That is a real use of the word, and it is true. Uh, but there's more to it. Th- this, this word convict could bring about repentance, but it also could bring about judgment. Remember Jesus said earlier in John 14, 17, that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the Spirit is only given to those who believe, who see him with the eyes of their hearts, who know him with, with just the, the inner reality of who he is in their, their hearts and in their souls. That's who receives the Spirit. And what this means is that the word convict isn't always positive. It's not always a positive word. For those who reject Christ, the word convict is judicial. It is judgment. For example, to be convicted of a crime is to be held accountable for the very crime that that they're presenting in the court and to be held guilty of it. And so as the spirit bears witness to Christ to believers and as they bear witness to Christ in this world, there is a reality of conviction in the very response that people have to this witness. Now think about this for a second. How the world judges Christ, how they judge and, and, and determine who Christ is actually determines how they will be judged eternally. What they discern about Christ will determine how they are judged, whether conviction or whether acquittal. That's what's going on here in this passage. And Jesus describes three specific dimensions of the Spirit's work as he convicts the world. He says the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he quickly breaks down each of these in very short order. And so I want to I follow him as he does this and try to unpack each of them. So if the first one is in verse 9. He says the Spirit convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in him. So when the Spirit bears witness to Jesus in this world, the world is convicted. They are convicted. They are exposed. They are called out concerning their sin because they refuse to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that may on the surface seem, well, that's simple enough. They refuse to believe Jesus, so they're guilty of their sin. And that's true. But it's also important to recognize what sin really is. What is sin at the bottom? I think we often tend to think about sin as these mechanical activities, these these things that we do or say that go against God's command. And that's true. Things that we do or say that are in rejection of or rebellion to God's commands are sin. But those aren't the root of sin. Those aren't the source of sin. Those aren't, those aren't where sin bubbles up from. Those are simply outward manifestations of a far deeper problem. The Bible depicts sin as, and this is a very shocking and controversial depiction, but this is what the Bible says, as anything that 
proceeds from unbelief. Anything. Anything. For example, Paul says in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not hard, not difficult, impossible. Now unpack the ramifications of those two passages. It's profound. Let me, let me help you. This is controversial stuff. Showing kindness to a stranger. Telling the truth when it's hard. Doing philanthropic deeds at great sacrifice to yourself are actually sin if they are done from a place of unbelief. Now, how in the world is that possible, Jeremy? How in the world is, are those actions that help others sin? Well, let me, let me help build a bridge here. To do anything in this world, whether it is beneficial to others or whether it is not beneficial to others, if it is done in rejection of and in rebellion to God, the reality of God, and him being the source of all goodness, then it is sin because it does not point back to the source where any good comes from. For example, to take money that you have that was given to you by God, no matter if you're a believer or not, that's where the money comes from. And to pay for a hospital to be built without giving him credit in your heart or in your mind is not only to steal God's money, but it is to rob him of glory rightly do him. It is to say, as we sign the check, we don't need you. Thank you very much. We got this covered. When in fact, the very impulse for the hospital to be built came from God. As did the money and as did every other part of the fabric of that situation. And Jesus is saying that when the spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin because at the root of every sinful action we've done or thought that we've had or desire that is percolated in our hearts is unbelief. Unbelief, not just in God, but unbelief in Christ. For if they believed in God, as Jesus says, they would have believed in the one that he sent. So in their unbelief, not only do they sin, not only does the world sin in not believing, refusing to believe in the creator God and the provision that he's made, but they have severed themselves from forgiveness. They've cut themselves off completely from the opportunity to be acquitted before this just judge. And this is made evident every time the spirit bears witness of Christ through his people in their presence. Their rejection of Christ is actually God's conviction of their sin. That's number one. The second thing Jesus says here is that the spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because he goes to the father and they will see him no longer. Now, what does he mean here? Righteousness. How do you convict somebody of righteousness? Well, there could be a biblical argument. And I think this is, this is a fair, fair statement because it's true to make that 
in the saints who are indwelt by the spirit, there is a Christ-like righteousness that exists in this world, even though Christ isn't present. That's true. That's real. Our emulation of Christ in this world is a witness, not to our righteousness, but to his righteousness. But look at the language Jesus uses here about going to the father. The very reason they'll see him no more is because he is now enthroned at the right hand of his father in heaven the right hand of majesty, as Hebrews told us last week. This is his glorification. This is his exaltation. He, he, he was a, he was, when he was telling his disciples as he was about to die on the cross for the glory of his father and for the, the redemption of his people. And Jesus says that, that in me going, in me going to the father and in you not seeing me anymore, I will, through the Holy Spirit, convict the world of righteousness. Now think about this. If Jesus had died and stays dead, never to be raised, then none of this matters. None of this matters. If he, if, if he's not raised and exalted to his father, if he doesn't go back to the one who sent him, none of this matters. But if he is raised, then every single ounce of it matters. All of it matters. Romans 1, 4 tells us, that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according, listen to this, to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the way that we know that Jesus was the son of God, the way that we know that he was righteous and perfect in every way is that he didn't stay dead. He was raised by the spirit of holiness. 1 Timothy 3.15, this awesome mystery of godliness doxology says that Christ was vindicated by the spirit and raised to glory. So Jesus's resurrection and exaltation proves his righteousness to this world. Neither of those could have happened if he was unrighteous. Think about that. How could God have raised him by the spirit of holiness if Christ was unholy? How could he have vindicated, if God is just and righteous, how could he have vindicated his son through the spirit if he was evil and was a sinner? That couldn't have happened. And although we are sinners, all of us have done, all of us have sinned, all of us have committed treason against God and we deserve the penalty of sin, which is death. The resurrection of Christ in his exaltation to his father's side proves that he alone is righteous. And this is precisely what the Spirit is bearing witness to when he convicts the world of righteousness. He's saying Christ alone has ascended to the Father. The reason he's not here anymore, even though he's raised, is because he was righteous. He has the righteousness that all of us lack and the righteousness that all of us desperately need. And how we respond to that reality of the righteousness of Christ matters eternally and will make more sense as we go to this third and final facet. The Spirit's work in the world according to Jesus not only does convict the world of sin and convict the world of righteousness, but Jesus says the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, what does Jesus mean here by ruler of the world? Well, the word archon here in the Greek 
is in, I'll just cut to the chase, it's in reference to Satan. Satan is the ruler of the world here. Ephesians 2 tells us that all unbelievers in this world are following the prince of the power of the air. Same person. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the gospel. So the ruler of the world here in this text isn't a man. It's the, the being, the person behind all evil rulers, namely Satan, the enemy, the devil. But Jesus says here that this ruler is judged. And in John 12, 31, he kind of explains in a way how this is going to happen. He says there in John 12, 31, that Satan, this ruler, will be cast out when Christ is lifted up on the cross, when he's glorified. So there's a judgment, there's a casting out that happens to the ruler of the world when Satan, or when Christ is lifted up, when Jesus is nailed to that tree. And then in the same conversation that we've been looking at in these three chapters at the end of John, something Jesus says here is very helpful to this end. He tells them in John 14, 30, that I will no longer talk with you much, for the ruler of this world is coming. Now listen to this. The ruler of this world is coming. Jesus says, he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is why Jesus died. This is a very succinct way to put why Jesus died. Jesus did not die on this planet because the ruler of this world had claim on him. That is not why he died. Jesus died because he loves the Father. He loves the Father and he's obedient to his Father even to the point of death. Everything that Jesus did was, was out of love and adoration for his Father. There was not a drop of sin not a drop of rebellion against his Father in heaven by Christ. Not a single drop. He was perfect. And yet we know, every human being knows, that's not true about them. That statement can't be made about us. We are not perfect. We sin. We are all sinners. And what that means, if you follow the logical implications is that the ruler of this world has claim on us. We're not in Christ. He has claim on us. Each one of us. And this is no doubt why Satan is referred to as the accuser. He's called the adversary and the accuser throughout Scripture. And what that means is that our greatest enemy in this world isn't actually the ruler of this world. Not Satan. Our greatest enemy is not the devil. Our greatest enemy is the sin with which the devil can accuse us. Because without that, he has nothing on us. Nothing on us. But we do have sin. And the point here that Christ is making in the conviction of the Spirit is that he did not have sin. And so when he died, he didn't die for his own sin. He didn't die because the devil had claim on him. He died embracing the, the sin of every single person who would trust in him, receiving it, taking it on himself. Think about that. He took on every impulse of faithlessness that you've had in your life, from first breath to last. 
every lie, every deceit, every God-dishonoring attitude where you didn't want to do X because it was inconvenient. He took it all on, and then he proceeded to pay for every single one of them. Until the penalty for that sin was completely erased. That's what he did. He satisfied the just judgment due every millisecond of our faithlessness towards God. Therefore, removing the claim that the ruler of this world had on his people and justifying them before his Father in heaven. That's what Christ did in the cross. And when he did that, there are two realities that proceed from that action of him dying for his people on the cross. Both of them have to deal with this last conviction of the Spirit, and they have eternal implications, eternal significance. The first is this. When Christ died in this way, embracing the sin of his people on the cross, the ruler of this world and everyone who is in alignment with him, everyone who has embraced the pattern of this world will be judged. The ruler still has claim on those people. They're not going anywhere. They will stay with him for all eternity. This is anyone who's ever just trusted in their own righteousness. I'm good enough. Judge me on my works, God. Instead of taking shelter in Christ's righteousness, they have been judged alongside their, their ruler and their own rejection of the cross is a rejection of the very eternal life they need to be with the Father. That's what it is. So the cross, I mean, this is very, this is very hard. The cross isn't actually good news to everybody. To those who, who reject the cross, the cross is bad news. When the Spirit bears witness in this world to what happened to the ruler of this world, Satan, when Christ died for his people on the cross, it isn't good news. Not for people who reject it. For people who reject the cross, it is judgment that they will share with their ruler. Judgment. To reject Jesus as Lord is not to be neutral. That's not to be like, I'm on the fence, I haven't decided yet. To reject Christ as Lord is to embrace another Lord. And that Lord, that ruler of this world, are the ones for which the eternal fires of hell were created. And therefore to embrace him, whether consciously or unconsciously, is to embrace his own judgment. That's what the Spirit convicts when he convicts the world of judgment. But there's a second dimension to this. Praise be to God, because not everybody rejects the cross. The second part belongs to only those who have come to Christ and drank from the water that is Jesus. Those who have seen their sin through the Holy Spirit, seen his righteousness through the Holy Spirit, and have come to trust in his work and to take shelter in him. Listen to the words of Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul says in this text, God made us alive together with him, with Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses. By doing what? Canceling the record of debt 
that stood against us with its legal demands. This, this record of debt, everything we've ever done that deserves the eternal penalty of separation from God, this record of debt he set aside. How did he do that? Nailing it to the cross. Pinned it to the tree. And by doing that, Paul tells us, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. Triumphing over them in Christ. That's what God did on the cross. The ruler of this world, Satan, had no claim on Jesus. He was innocent in every way, which is why he was raised and why he was exalted to the right hand of his father. He never, ever sinned. But that's not our situation. That's not our situation. Our life is filled to the brim with God dishonoring attitudes, actions, desires, impulses. And so that's not us. We are guilty. And we are guilty in, in as much as Christ was innocent in every way, we are guilty in every single way. And yet, despite the fact that we deserve to join Satan in his judgment, on the cross, God does something spectacular. He takes, I just put this in your mind, go there. He takes every single sin you've ever committed. It's called here the record of death. And if you're like me, you know that that record was very long. And he nails it into his son on the cross so that his son would pay for it in full. And in doing that, he disarms Satan. In doing that, he judges Satan. In doing that, he casts Satan out of the courtroom. If your faith is in Christ, the accuser no longer has any claim on you. Period. None. The only claim he had on you was that you were unforgiven of many sins. And that claim is gone forever. That's what it means for Christ's people that the ruler of this world has been judged. That on the cross he was cast out because he has nothing on you anymore. Nothing. In Christ, we have been forgiven. This is what the Holy Spirit was given to communicate us. So that the reality of what happened in the cross and through the cross would so saturate our hearts. The, the, the word that Jesus uses here for helper is interesting. With this courtroom sort of reality that's being portrayed here with the use of the word conviction. The word that he uses for, for helper here is parakletos. It's called the paraclete. And parakletos in Greek has a rich meaning. It's not just somebody who helps you. In some of your translations, it might read counselor. But it's even more than that. It means advocate. The Holy Spirit is the advocate in the courtroom that is given to us when Christ was glorified and it accomplished what his father had set him out to do. And he tells us that the penalty of sin, when it was judged in Christ, we were acquitted for all eternity. There is no sin on us anymore. 
We possess the righteousness of Christ Jesus because of what happened on that tree. And the reality of, of the Spirit's witness, when it penetrates our hearts, when it penetrates our souls, it becomes not a pool of stagnant water. It's living water. It is active water. It is rivers of living water that course out into the world in our bearing witness of Christ to the people around us, to the community that we live in, to our co-workers, to our friends, to our family members who don't know Jesus. The sober reality from John 16 is that for some people, that witness will be a, 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 a conviction of judgment. It'll be a conviction of their rejection of the only possible opportunity for acquittal and for forgiveness. And they will ultimately eternally share in the judgment with the one that they bowed their knee to, the ruler of this world. But for those who come to this living water, for those who, who hear the words of Jesus in our mouths, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, and they come to him and they drink, those who see the righteousness of Jesus Christ in their own sin and say, I don't want my sin anymore, and they take refuge in his righteousness, they will hear the witness of this spirit that dwells in us, and they will think that it is the greatest news in the world, because it is. And they will say from the deepest parts of their soul, God, please take the record of debt that is on me and nail it to your son's cross. Nail it to your son's cross. Set it aside forever because I can't bear it anymore. This is the ministry of the Spirit. Before anything else, above anything else, this is why God, through Jesus, gave the Spirit when Christ was glorified to those who believe. And if you come to, to Christ and you have drank from Christ the living water that he's talking about in John 7, then you need to know right now, not tomorrow, not two years from now, not ten years from now, right now, in your heart, there is surging rivers of living water that are ready to break free into this world, that are ready to, to penetrate this world and bring about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we need you. We need the, the kind of, of realities that we're seeing here are the very reason you sent the Spirit. We can't discern them or understand them with the flesh. We need you to reveal to us, as you say in 1 Corinthians 2, the spiritual things that are underneath the words that we're reading. Help us to see this. Help us to embrace this. Help us to love it. Help us to see the, the ministry of the Spirit, not as some archaic, ancient, far-off reality that is just a story, but as the story of our very lives right now, today that we were not given the Spirit to keep our mouths shut about Jesus. We were given the Spirit to be witnesses even to the end of the world. 
And so I pray that you would help us, Father God, live in the reality of John 7 with rivers of living water coursing out of our lives into every single person we encounter, Father. We need boldness. We need strength. We need fearlessness. We need the willingness to share in suffering with Christ Jesus. We need your power. We need to be clothed with power from on high. We're pleading with you, Father God. Do that to your people so that the Spirit can go to work in the hearts and minds of those in our lives. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.